Welcome to the Teen Gardens Podcast, where we drink tea and explore the gardens of Victoria, B.C. This is the companion piece to the video series, which was filmed on the Kwangin Territory in the spring of 2022, the year of the garden. And today, we're drinking a delicious cup of government house tea. I've got some honey in mine. How about you, Lauren? Well, I've just got a tiny little bit of oat milk. Mmm, delicious. Yeah. So this tea is a blend of Ceylon, Yunnan, and Keeman black teas created by Murchies for Government House, the residence of the Lieutenant Governor of British Columbia. Because yes, in this episode, we visited Government House in Rockland. The 36 acres of grounds include formal gardens, native woodlands, and heritage buildings. We wanted to learn about the grounds, and we're also lucky enough to be invited for tea in the Royal Suite. But first, we met with Friends of Government House member Janet Renouf at a beautiful spot overlooking the vast Gary Oak Woodlands to hear about the community involvement with these grounds. Looking at that swallowtail butterfly. Do you get them here a lot? Not as much as I'd like to see. Not as many as there used to be, but it's good to see that one. Could you please tell us where we are right now? We're at the lookout and we are looking over the woodlands that have been a restoration project here at Government House since uh, the end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s. What does restoration work look like here at Government House? Initially, the Woodlands were covered with broom and Himalayan blackberry and uh, ivy. And the I wasn't here, but the uh, original work was removing truckloads of broom all one summer. There was a um, group of students from UVic, Hebda, who was the head botanist at the BC Museum, was uh, the leader and you know the first few years were just removing broom and then they started on the blackberry and the ivy. So you say this project started in the 80s what was the impetus for the project? was the end of the 80s and the Queen and Prince Philip were here on an official visit and staying here and Prince Philip went out for an early morning walk around the gardens and down through the woodlands and came back and said to Dr. David Lamb, who was then the LG, a lieutenant governor, that really he should do something about getting a volunteer group together to restore the woodlands and the gardens. And David Lamb began working with uh, George Radford and uh, two other people who are well-known in horticultural circles, and they set up the friends. So the restoration and, well, actually, the invasive species removal started in the woodlands in summer of 90 and continued through 91, and the friends group was started in 1992. There were some people who came and worked on the upper gardens as well before the friends started. They had to double dig the Rockland 1 and Rockland 2, the borders up above, because the soil was so hard they could not just get a fork into it. It was really, had not been tended for quite a long time. And 
it needed a lot of work. So the woodlands restoration has been ongoing since then. So we, we're still battling a bit of broom, less these days, and ivy and the Himalayan blackberry and purple oyster weed and various other baddies. Wow. So the restoration of the woodland is the specific reason that Friends of Government House began? I would say so, yes. I mean, there was also an emphasis on, put, you know, restoring the upper gardens to bring the public in. But um, the woodlands was, was the main focus initially, yes. These woodlands are Garyoke ecosystem, is that correct? Yes. Yeah, yes, so they're very environmentally significant to Victoria. Definitely, yes. And um, we have a couple of red-listed plants and a number of blue-listed. So you know what red-listed? No, I was just about to ask. <laughs> okay. So red-listed is in danger of being totally wiped out. Some of them are red-listed just in BC, so they're okay in other locations in the world. But there are some things that we have that do not occur anywhere else in the world. What are a couple of those? Uh, Limnanthus macunai, um, Macaon's meadow foam is one. It's a tiny little ferny plant that grows uh, close to the ground. It's an annual, and there are only a few sites where it occurs, and uh, Victoria is one of them. Since you've done this restoration, have you seen a change in diversity? Is there more biodiversity here now? We actually haven't analyzed whether there's greater biodiversity. Certainly in the areas where we've removed things like hairy cat's ears, that's another a plant. It looks a bit like a dandelion, you know, a tall stalk with a yellow flower at the top. And basil leaves are right on the ground. And they outcompete. They take away the sunshine and the rain from uh, some of the bulbs. So some of the bulbs are really tiny, like they're no bigger than half of my fingernail. And they can withstand drought and, you know, extreme environmental conditions, but they can't tolerate being completely cut off as these basil leaves do for them. So we've noticed where we've removed the hairy cats on the eastern oat crops, for instance, that we're getting a lot more of these blue-eyed grass and um, monkey flower and other plants that, you know, are very, very tiny, resilient, but they can't outcompete these great li hairy leaves that lie flat on the ground. Well, I have one more question while we're here. Now that you can look over and this, this lookout and see all the work you've done, how does it make you feel? Oh, good. Yes, like um, it was worth it. And uh, more people are paying attention now. More people are interested in like this garden behind us, how people can incorporate a few native plants. You don't have to go completely native. You can incorporate a few and it makes it easier for the insects and the birds and all the critters to keep on doing what they do. Oh, that's lovely. 
So this lookout was the idea and pro a project of Iona Campanola when she was Lieutenant Governor, and it was opened in 2004, as you can see on the stonework. And at that point, the woodlands were not open to the public. You could go through on a guided tour a couple of times a year. You had to pay $10 for the tour, and the public were not allowed down below at all. And uh, she thought that this would be a wonderful spot for people to survey the woodlands. And so there are four plaques here with a lot of information about what people were looking at. And a couple of years after that, we the, the woodlands were open to the public. The trail was opened. Yeah. So it goes down below here. Can't see any of it. It's between these trees here and the rocky oak crop, and it goes down around the corner and along by Richardson and then back up. So the whole stand of trees at the bottom is Victoria aspens. They are very uh, rare, again, they uh, only occur here and in Uplands Park. And I think there's a third location maybe over in Colwood, not sure. Hmm. Mm -hmm. When the seed is ripe, this will kind of open up and the seeds will go spring, sort of like violet seeds do. So I love the color of Camus. It's just so oh, beautiful. Isn't it gorgeous? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was in England on a canal trip years ago and um, we were stopping off at some of the great houses and the head gardener was touring us around one of these and I was raving about these blue flowers. What are these? And he said, where did you say you were from? <laughs> I said, British Columbia. He said, and you don't know what these are? <laughs> I actually didn't know we had and I, in England. And, and uh, well, they imported them. You know, like the great houses right. would have these wonderful conservatories and so on. And, and uh, he said, they're camas. They come from British Columbia. They come from your corner of the world. <laughs> well, that showed you. I did. Yeah, I didn't know it. I didn't know. And at that point, I really didn't know much about because at at home in Nova Scotia, my mother was very interested in native plants and fostered some that we had that were very rare at the cottage. But I knew nothing about these. Mm did you want to go up to there and do an overview or do you want to go somewhere else? I think if your instincts are to go up, let's do it and, and do the overview overlooking yeah. everything. Yeah. The overview might spark other questions as well. Mm -hmm. then we'll yeah. All right. So now that we're here in this glorious lookout spot, how long have you been volunteering here? Uh, since about 05, I think. Wow. So a big stretch. Mm -hmm. What is it about it that draws you to this work? Initially, I signed up because I wanted to learn about native plants. I bought a property that had some, and I didn't know anything about them. And I figured this was a good place to learn, and it has been. I have learned so much and made so many connections with people who are knowledgeable and willing to share their knowledge. So, yeah. So I know here at Government House Gardens, there are a lot of different gardens within the property. How much space do the gardens take up? How big is this land? 
33 acres altogether. I can't remember what that translates into hectares. I should know, but I can't remember. So it's pretty extensive. Yes. So there must be a lot of volunteers. I don't know the numbers at the moment, but uh, I'd say there are probably around 200 in the gardens. And then there are volunteers in the costume museum and the tea room and uh, tour guides in the house and the flower arrangers, uh, designers, and yeah, there's a lot. Wow, it's pretty special. I think like all the gardens we come to, like they wouldn't exist without volunteers. It's pretty special to see. Yes, yes. Behind us is her honor, Iona Campanola's rock river with stones from each of the areas of BC. Her honor, Iona Campanola, used to say that it was a home for all British Columbians. And I think she might have been the first Lieutenant Governor to say that. So in, in the sense that I understood her to mean it, it was that everybody is welcome here and that everybody belongs here. And it's a, a place to be like the beating heart of the province to bring us all together. So when we had the big garden show called BC Blooms, we did bring people together from uh, you know, all parts of the province that wanted to come or could afford to come and bring exhibits. And uh, there are concerts in the summer that are to bring people together. So there is a real emphasis on developing a sense of community and that it isn't just the monarchy in the sense of uh, one family that is over in another country, but we are all part of this province and we are all part of the government and the, um, the crown actually is all of Canada. It's all of us. It's not one royal family. What are we looking at now? What could you point out to us? Well, um, we're in the terraces and the deer has just gone up the rocks there to see if can find something to eat. We're overlooking the woodlands and across the Strait of Juan de Fuca to the Olympic Mountains. You might just go and film the deer really. So I figured that you would. <laughs> It's <laughs> hilarious. I know. Because <laughs> we have so many. Are they problematic in the garden? Oh, they're just, they eat everything. Just when you think, oh, they won't eat that, they turn around and eat that. So one time a friend asked what a spring flower bulb she could plant that the deer wouldn't eat. And very confidently I said, Daffodils. They won't eat daffodils. All parts of the daffodils are poisonous. And the next spring, she phoned me up and she said, Janet, they've eaten the daffodils. Got to update your records. <laughs> <laughs> so we were recently told that for the most part, deer don't eat native plants. Is there any truth in that? Uh, not that I've seen. No, no. They, we've had to cage the Gary Oaks that we've planted, and we can't remove the cages until they're really quite big. 
and uh, they've been eating the blooms off the camas. There's a camas field down below that was one of the best uh, fields uh, on the property, and they started one year eating just the flowers, and sub subsequent years they started going down to the leaves. They were eating to the point where they were just leaving about two or three inches, five centimeters or ten centimeters above the ground, and I thought that the camas would die. They have come back, and they're not eating as much, but yeah, the only thing they don't eat is something that has prickles. Right. <laughs> so the nutka, the native rose, they're not, and we planted some where you found me today by the wash house. Mahonia, which was that berm that I pointed out at the beginning, that's got spiky leaves, and so they don't usually eat that. What else don't they eat? There's very little. So even things that gives them stomach pains, like um, magnolia, is, is poisonous to them. And uh, they eat too much of it. You know, the fawns could die, but they will munch until they find out that it makes them sick. Right. Um, ocean spray, like ocean spray, will be coming into bloom very shortly. It's got these long, white panicles that uh, look lovely and they will eat that whole thing down plus they scrape the bark to mark trails for their families the the males do with their antlers and so the trees sometimes get girdled by that right I'm sorry, sorry. Did you get it? <laughs> yeah, I did a bit. Kind of going, why are you following me? Why are you following me? Stink eye looks, but I got it. Thank you for pointing it out. Oh, yeah, we're just been talking about animals mostly. Great. Yeah. I wouldn't normally leave a conversation, but in this case, I believe it was worth it because that deer appears in the title sequence of the video series. So please check it out. Yeah, you can see it in any of the six episodes on Telesoptic TV or YouTube, and it looks beautiful. Why, thank you. So for those of you who don't live in Victoria, you might not know just how prevalent deer are in this city. They are everywhere, which is either magical or monstrous, depending on who you talk to. I think they're pretty magical when they have some space to roam. There is quite a bit of protected area around the city, so that is a blessing. It is. I love to see them. They make me feel happy. So, once we were done with our deer-based adventure, Janet took us to her favourite garden. And on the way, we were captivated by a beautiful tree-lined area. This is called the East Lawn Garden, or there are a lot of rhodos, but there are very old Douglas firs. And the Douglas firs are suffering with the current changes in climate. They're not getting enough water in the winter, and uh, these are looking pretty healthy, but in general, the Douglas fir forest is highly stressed the last few years. Do you have any arbutus on the grounds here? We planted one uh, just by the compost, and it's doing really well. We've tried planting a couple. They don't necessarily take where you plant them. You know, they are very particular about where they grow. I know, and I know a lot of them are struggling lately for the same reason. Yes, yes. They have been, there is a disease that's attacking them and has come moved up the coast as the, the climate has changed. 
moved further and further up the coast and it eventually got to us about maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. And there are rhododendrons growing here. Yes. Do they grow well together? Is there a relationship? Oh, yeah. They do. Well, I don't know. Suzanne Simard didn't talk about rhodos and Douglas firs, but uh, they are both, you know, acid-loving plants. So they seem to do very well together here. And uh, yeah, they're spectacular. Yeah, Samard studied the interrelation between the fir trees and alder and birch. Mm. That is the best book I've read in years. Suzanne Samard's book, Finding the Mother Tree, has brought a lot of attention to the importance of protecting old-growth forests. We actually tried to speak to her for our last podcast, Value Nature, but she is a very busy woman. She is. And next up, we met with another very busy woman, Mary Cake, who was wearing the most beautiful gardening bonnet we have ever laid eyes on. So maybe try to imagine that as you listen to her speak. Could you introduce yourself, please? I'm Mary Cake. I'm the coordinator of the Vegetable Garden at Government House, which is a volunteer organization run by the Friends of Government House Gardening Society. And uh, so I'm a volunteer gardener, as we all are. How long have you been volunteering here? Oh, 15 years. Wow. Not in the vegetable garden, but the vegetable garden got underway in about 2009, 2010. So I took it on uh, in about 2011. I didn't start it. There were three other people who got it going. They managed in this first quadrant, which used to be the whole area for bedding plants that the nursery garden used to grow out for stock to propagate on. And then once a year, there was a huge plant sale here at Government House. It took about 20 or 40 volunteers to manage it. And it finally just ran out of steam. And so now things have changed. And um, we have a nursery garden there that now sells to the public, kind of on the almost six months of the year. So it's a different format. And we have gained uh, two more quadrants. So now we harvest more than 3,000 pounds of vegetables a season. Uh, we extend the season into from March into October to the end of October. So we grow six months and grow 25 different vegetables and about 63 different varieties. And we turn these beds over 50 times in a season, all totaled. Yeah, so we're growing carrots and beets, salad mix. We uh, offer salad mix to the tea room. And we grow garnish flowers, edible flowers for them for their meals. And uh, yeah, like that. It's what fun. happens to the rest of the vegetables? We sell it to the volunteers on site because there could be as many as 200 volunteers in the other gardens. Because this is 36 acres and 22 gardens, I think. And so we have sales on the days that we're here, which are just Tuesdays and Thursdays. We harvest and then sell what we're we're offering. And we also send at least 300 pounds of produce to charity to help with the community food security. So, so it's yeah. pretty self-sustaining then. It is. And it's kind of a closed loop because the friends give me a budget by which I buy the seed and the, and the soil mixes or not soil mix so much as compost and plant it. And then I consider this, we all do consider this a perk 
to our members for volunteering because it's all organic. It's picked this morning and they get it within three hours of out of the ground and can't get fresher. So people seem to appreciate it very much. And right now we're harvesting salad mix, head lettuce, spinach, and some gorgeous radishes. So next is coming up, sugar snap peas, summer squashes going in and pole beans and um, cucumbers. So we're getting underway. That's yeah. awesome. And it's a beautiful day today, but, it um, is. but we've been finding that a lot of blooms are about three weeks behind this mm -hmm. year. Does that translate to the vegetables as yes, well? Yes, indeed it does. Our sugar snaps, those I started in the greenhouse because it was so cool and transplanted them out. And that was more than six weeks ago. And that's as high as they are. And now with the change increase in day length and daylight, they're getting ready to bolt. I mean, they're going to put out a little bit of they're putting out blossoms now, but it, we're not going to get much of a harvest. Same has been true of we're three weeks late getting starting our vegetable sales. And who knows how we'll go? I don't know. Yeah, it's just an ever-evolving process. Right? Oh, it is. It is. Live and learn. <laughs> we saw a deer walking through the grounds earlier. Yes. Do you have trouble with deer jumping in and No, although, although there's been people that have neglected to close gates, and then we've had them, which makes me grind my teeth. But we're the only fenced area, and so we feel quite... Um, we just don't have the same problems as long as people close the gates. <laughs> Right. So what does it mean to you to grow food in this garden? Oh, it's everything. I love it. I'm a retired organic farmer from California. And what I love about being able to do this, of course, everybody is so receptive. First of all, our audience is just so appreciative. And I don't have to make a living doing this. I'm retired. And uh, farming, there was always a constant worry of income because that's farming. And here I get the to enjoy what I love doing the most and I get a budget and I'm expected just to grow vegetables but that's it so it's great joy and then socializing is wonderful I have 20 volunteers that work in the garden and I seem to get the credit for all the work that goes on here but I tell people I'm just say where to plant it but I'm not they're doing the work and that's why it looks so beautiful is with their hard efforts and hard work. Yeah. That's beautiful. Also, I wonder, as somebody who has been invested in gardening for a long time, so mm -hmm. Victoria is known as the city of gardens. Yes. Do you notice a big difference in the climate between here? Oh, yeah. in California? Mm -hmm. Now, it was cooler than California. Now, I, we're in the best place in Canada, and maybe even the world, in that water is plentiful. We have true seasons, which I think the plants appreciate. Instead of having a constant tropical kind of garden that's trying to grow things that are not tropical, I like the season change. What else can I say? Sunlight, days are longer. The vegetables like that. Because basically there's many vegetables that respond to day length, uh, daylight. And so things like tomatoes that and potatoes have shorter days to less days to harvest because they have more hours of daily sunlight so that's an advantage and as we're climate change is happening and we're warming we unfortunately will not have an even warming it'll be sporadic we are able to grow things that we haven't been able to before like cucumbers 
and tomatoes are going to do well here. We could even do some bell peppers maybe. So I'd love to do melons, but I think that's out of the question. Although one year we grew uh, sweet potatoes and they're a hot weather crop. And we managed that uh, ability to do that. We had to do certain things to make them work, but yeah. So there's that. And I think the seasons are gonna lengthen in terms of, hopefully, in terms of the warmer um, days. Hopefully, maybe they'll start earlier. I don't know, not this year. It's interesting about growing cucumbers. I didn't, I didn't really know that, but I guess to move to a more Mediterranean diet. You can. That's true. You can. Yeah. I'm happy with it. You said that uh, what's left over is donated to charity, yes. correct? And yes. do you know what charitable organization receives the food? Oh, yes, because we're, we're in direct contact. We like to spread it all around. We don't play favorites. In the past, one of our charities is a nine-to-five soup kitchen. And basically the way the soup kitchens or the charities use our produce is we clean it and bag it, and it's in proportional sizes, you know, like a pound of radish, a head of lettuce, that kind of thing. So we take it already cleaned and bagged so that they can just hand it out one at a time to their clients. So I think it works really well. They don't have to handle it. So our next charity is going to be the uh, Quadra Village Community Center are going to receive our next go. And through the year, I make it a point to have more than we need of the certain crops that will travel well, like carrots, best boys, very popular. And head lettuce is very popular. Spinach is very welcomed. Even the radishes people like. Anything that will have some shelf life in it and is more nutritional. Could you just describe again what garden is behind us, please? Um, that's called the Children's Garden, and it's sponsored by Government House, and the organization that's started it and managing it is Growing Young Farmers. They're a nonprofit, and so children's groups walk here, I think probably up from the James Douglas or uh, other schools that are in the neighborhood, and come and garden once or twice a week with them. And it's through the school, uh, through this, you know, this time of year while things are growing. Yeah. And how do the children react to gardening? They love it. They just love it. Debbie there is the one who teaches them and they have such a great time. All they want to do is plant, plant something. Just put their hands in the dirt. Yeah, they love it. It's just, they've done a great job. And they're all age groups. They start with the little ones, like five and six year olds, all the way up to the 12 year olds. And do they get to return to harvest what they've planted? Usually. And Debbie can, if school is close to being out and they won't be back, usually things like salad mix and strawberries are ready. So she'll take it to the school and have a salad with them so they can have that full circle of what they've planted. Next, we were thrilled to be able to tour the inside of Government House thanks to our wonderful guide, Rachel Rilkoff. She also gifted us this Government House branded tea. So thanks again, Rachel, and cheers. Beyond Mary Cake's exquisite bonnet, we definitely recommend checking out the video series because this building is a feast for the eyes. There was so much to see inside this historic space, which includes the Millennium Windows, a series of stained glass that represent 18 different plant species found around British Columbia. Yeah, these windows are truly spectacular. I was so grateful to be able to see them. 
And that ballroom. Oh my gosh, the ballroom that they were filming a Bollywood movie in that day. Right. Yeah, what an impressive space. It was an impressive scene that day as well. We definitely chose an exciting day to be there. Absolutely. And our final guest for the day was Jeremy Brownridge, who took the time out of his very busy schedule to have tea with us in the Royal Suite. We were pleased and privileged to be welcomed in this space, which isn't open to the public and is typically reserved for royal guests. Ooh la la. My name is Jeremy Brownridge. I'm private secretary to the Lieutenant Governor of British Columbia and executive director here at Government House. How long have you had that job? I've had this job for just about seven years, but I've worked in this office for 14 years. So what does that job look like day to day? Day to day, well, today my job uh, involves me speaking with you, which is an absolute delight. Thank you for coming today. Just moments ago, I was uh, sort of stick handling a Bollywood film production that's taking place today. Yesterday, for instance, I emceed a event. It was a, actually a donor's tea, we call it, an event to thank uh, Victoria Foundation supporters. I do, of course, work a lot supporting the Lieutenant Governor, making sure she's in the right place at the right time, sifting through the many, many event requests that we get, helping her render orders in council and constitutional duties. So I'm delighted to say that my uh, job duties are many and varied. Keeps it interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Could you tell us where we are right now? We are actually in a place that we don't often come. We are in the Government House Royal Suite uh, in their uh, private dining area. That's very exciting. We feel very privileged to be here. I very rarely sit here. Yeah. So what is the significance of tea service to Government House? Tea service, uh, I think it means a lot. It conjures up a lot of different things for a lot of different people. For us, let's have tea means come have a meeting. I like the fact that tea can kind of bridge cultural gaps even. Her Honor very often hosts diplomatic calls. That's members, uh, I think there's 88 consuls general in British Columbia and then visiting ambassadors from various countries. One thing that everybody seems to appreciate is a cup of tea. And uh, maybe not everyone loves a glass of wine or a cup of coffee, but it seems uh, culturally tea is something that's shared around the world. That's really nice. I like that like unity aspect yeah, yeah, yeah. of it. So Victoria has like a very strong tea culture. We can see that uh, through the whole city. Why do you think that is? Well, I, I think I think a few years ago we could more directly relate it to sort of the more near history of British influence uh, here in Victoria. In, in that way, reluctant to get into <laughs> too much of the uh, colonial history. Uh, but it's it's there, and I mean, um, in in terms of a uh, of a province, British Columbia is one of the newer ones um, uh, in having been arrived at by settlers from the UK and, and various other parts of Europe. So, I think here you'll find more first and second generation Brits than you might find in other parts of the country. So there is certainly that tie there. I think, though, in more recent years, tea has grown beyond what we might consider just having a high tea or a British tea or a cuppa to include things like bubble tea. I've seen other Asian-influenced tea shops uh, serving matcha. I think other areas of Central Asia as well are well represented in here. So I think tea has very recently evolved, and I'm delighted to see that, and it's very much more representative 
of British Columbia's current culture. Yeah, I agree. We've been noticing that throughout yeah. this series yeah. that it has this peg as like a British thing. It's really not. It's, it's really not, like yeah. really it's quite really, universal. Yeah, absolutely. I've even seen, uh, I think there was a Syrian grocery store where, you know, folks out front sipping on some tea. Right? That's, so it's really, really evolving here uh, in Victoria. Would you like to pour us some tea? May I offer you a cup of tea? Oh, that would be wonderful. Thank you. To add this to your job description. Right. Well, it's well entrenched in my job description. Mm-hmm. Well, we've even Could steeped it an appropriate amount of time. <laughs> it does look good. <laughs> I like my tea clear. <laughs> I like it quite strong with like a tiny little bit of milk. Yeah. Well, this is good. Black tea is good too. Could you tell us who else might have had tea in this room or in government house in general? And it might be a national secret, but I think in this space, <laughs> since this is the guest suite for visitors, um, members of the Canadian royal family, other heads of state, other royalty from around the world, so I could think more. most recently would be the Governor General. I can say uh, that the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge quite recently stayed with us and would have sat at this table. Other members of the royal family, the Earl and Countess of Wessex, and at one point the Queen would have actually sat in this room. I believe she stayed with us five times during her reign. Regrettably, I haven't been here for any of those. The last visit, I believe, was the Golden Jubilee in 2002. She would very likely have taken tea in this room. So there's clearly a very, very strong component of volunteerism at Government House Gardens. Absolutely. Is that unique to this Government House? It is. Uh, I'm pleased to say we're a little bit the envy of my uh, counterparts uh, throughout Canada. We are very much blessed with the weather, but we're even more blessed with, I'd say, around 250 active volunteer gardeners. They give so much of themselves uh, for the upkeep and maintenance of this beautiful 36-acre estate. So if you come here on a Tuesday or a Thursday, you can see uh, literally hundreds uh, of folks with their fingers in the soil bringing life to this beautiful estate. Thank you so much to everyone at Government House. It is often described as the ceremonial home for British Columbians, and we certainly felt welcome during our time there. Find the video episode on Talus Optic TV or YouTube for a visual tour of Government House and its remarkable grounds. You can also check out our social media account at Tea and Gardens YYJ. Thanks for listening and happy gardening.